special thanks to our worship team for leading us and pointing us to Christ this morning. And uh, I just wanted to uh, compliment my wife um, who wrote that Lord's Supper hymn. Uh, Not the words. The words are from the Gatsby hymnal, but the tune is Katie's. And uh, also Ben Hoke helped with some of the lyrics too. So that's a a gift to our church that um, we can receive and look forward to singing in the future as well. Um, I was just thinking as we were as we were worshiping how much you know our congregation is is dealing with these days, and it seems like such a fitting text that the Lord has for us this morning. I mean, we've been battling through as our world has this um, COVID nineteen pandemic for the better part of a year, and it's been acute in our congregation this week, especially. Um, I think of um, the many surgeries that our congregation has had, serious surgeries um, that we face as a body. Um, we've also got, you know, the news of, of, of the 10-month-old passing away from John, John's friend's family and, and Pastor Keith's neighbor with a 19-year-old son and just so much heavy, heavy, heavy things. And um, it, it seems fitting, and especially even as we come up on Pastor Ted's two-year homegoing this week, um, just so many reminders of the brokenness of our world and and um, our need for Christ. And so this, this text this morning is a timely one, and it's something I hope the Lord will speak to all of our hearts this morning, because this passage, this last of the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation three fourteen to 22, is Jesus' word to a church that's self-sufficient. You know, even in all of our trials and all of our difficulties, we can still lean on ourselves and look to ourselves. And Jesus this morning wants to dissuade us from that impulse. He wants to remind us that we are utterly and absolutely dependent on God for everything and that any attempt to engage in any kind of self-sufficiency is to trigger the divine gag reflex. A few months ago, I came across the following tweet on Twitter where a pastor friend wrote the following, to be in Christ in North Korea is safer than being outside of Christ in North America. Do you believe that? It's true. Because to be in Christ in North Korea means you're headed for heaven no matter what happens to you. And the circumstances are such that you're forced to depend upon Christ. But to be outside of Christ in North America means you're headed for hell no matter what happens to you. And the circumstances are such that you're tempted not to depend on Christ. For Christians... The most dangerous places to live are not where our bodies are most at risk. The most dangerous places for Christians to live are where our souls are most at risk. And if there's one thing that biblically strangles faith more than anything else, it's prosperity. Our wealth is what makes our Western culture spiritually fatal. The problem is that affluence and prosperity so easily deceive us into believing we don't need anything else. When we're blessed with prosperity, which we are, we have to guard against becoming complacent in our affluence or relying on our wealth or becoming blind to our spiritual need. We must fight self-sufficiency And this text, this letter to the church at Laodicea gives us three strategies for fighting self-sufficiency. 
And those three strategies I want to walk through in our sermon this morning. Here's the first strategy for fighting self-sufficiency. We need to be enamored with Jesus. We need to be enamored with Jesus. Here are John D. Rockefeller's three simple rules for anyone who wants to become rich. Ready for them? Number one, go to work early. Number two, stay at work late. Number three, find oil. Well, brothers and sisters, the church at Laodicea had found oil, but they lost Christ. Proverbs 13.7 says, One man pretends to be rich, yet has nothing. Another pretends to be poor, yet has great wealth. What is true for men is true for churches as well. What appears to be is not always reality. Have we not seen that again and again in these letters? Like Sardis, the church that had a reputation for being alive but was really dead, we come to Laodicea, a church that appeared to be busy. It was what Sardis, where Sardis was a church that looked alive because it was active and vibrant and busy. Laodicea had the appearance of success, but it was lavished because it was lavished in luxury. But its material strength was its spiritual weakness. They were self-sufficient, self-satisfied, and complacent. They had become a church confident in their own resources and no longer seeing a need to rely on the Lord. But they lacked one thing in particular, the most important thing a church could ever want, the praise that comes from Jesus Christ. That they didn't have. This was a church of which Jesus had nothing good to say. Someone once said, measure wealth not by the things you have, but by the things you have for which you would not take any money. The Laodiceans had traded the praise of Jesus Christ for worldly wealth. This was a church that was loaded. No budget problems, nicest building in the region, well-dressed, driving the best and fanciest transportation, adorned with the finest jewelry, rich in so many ways, but spiritually they ran around in rags. Spiritually they were standing on street corners holding signs. Spiritually they were sleeping under bridges. Their poverty is seen in this one fact alone. They were pictured as a church that had actually put Jesus out of the membership. They had allowed the treasure of all treasures, Jesus Christ, to be put out of their walls. Laodicea was so rich in all the things that didn't matter, yet they were so poor in all the things that really did. So to that, Jesus calls them back to him. And he calls them, first of all, to be enamored with who he is. Look at verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Let's take just a moment and look at those three phrases. Jesus is the Amen. Now, Amen, or Amen, was the biblically way, biblical way of saying, yes, we agree, by all means. That's what amen means. So be it. Undoubtedly so. Yep. Absolutely. When the people of God heard the word of God, as we do today, we typically respond with amen as a way of making it unmistakably clear that we participate with you in declaring this to be so. There is an echo in our hearts to what 
we hear. And this truth reverberates loudly in our soul so that we echo back, we agree with that. Yes, absolutely. May it be. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, All the promises of God find their yes or their amen in Jesus. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. When Jesus declares himself to be the amen, he is reminding himself, or reminding the Laodicean Christians and us, that he's the confirmation of all of God's promises. He is the yes to everything God has promised. Amen communicates agreement and an appeal to God to do what he has promised. So whatever God has promised to do, regardless of the context or time, no matter how unrealistic or far-fetched it may at first appear, will come to pass because of who Christ is and what Christ has done. He's the amen to all God has said he will do. Second, Jesus is the faithful and true witness. Now, because Jesus is God's amen, God's truth, then he can be trusted when he says that he'll bring about a new creation for his people. And he not only bears witness to these promises, he also is the one who faithfully carried out all that was needed to bring those promises to pass. Through his perfect life, his sinless death, his wrath-bearing, atoning death, his victorious, conquering resurrection, Jesus accomplished full and final salvation for all those who come to him, and they will receive the blessing of God's new creation because Jesus is the faithful and true witness. Thirdly, Jesus is the beginning of God's creation. Now, this phrase simply means that Jesus is the ruler over creation. He's the first fruits of the resurrection. He's the first fruits of this new creation that is coming. It doesn't mean that he's the first created being. We've already seen in chapter 1, verse 5, where Jesus is aligned with the Father and the Holy Spirit as the one eternal I am, as the one eternal in whom all things exist and all things have come the one before whom all things are and in whom all things exist and for whom all things were created. He's the beginning, the end, the alpha, and the omega. So we don't need to see this phrase as somehow Jesus is a part of God's creation. He's not a part of God's creation. He's the beginning of God's creation. In fact, in Revelation, the Father is referred to as the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end in Revelation 21.6. But interestingly, so is Jesus in Revelation 22, 13. He is called the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So Jesus is the source and sustainer and goal of creation. He provides for our every need while sustaining the universe, causing the sun to rise and fall. And we await the day when he will come back to bring about the beginning of God's new creation. Now, why does the writer remind or Jesus the the words of the the words of the spirit to the angel of the church in Laodicea right why 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 this why this description of Jesus as the amen and the faithful and true witness in the beginning of God's creation well i think it's simple he wants them to be enamored with who Jesus is john piper says about the, the importance of enamoring Jesus long looking with admiration produces change From your heroes, you pick up mannerisms and phrases and tones of voice and facial expressions and habits and demeanors and convictions and beliefs. The more admirable the hero is and the more intense your admiration, the more profound will be your transformation. John Owen says something similar when he says, It's by beholding the glory of Christ by faith that we're spiritually edified and built up in this world. For as we behold his glory, the life and power of faith grow stronger and stronger. 
It's by faith that we grow to love Christ. So if we desire strong faith and powerful love, which gives us rest and peace and satisfaction, we must seek them diligently, beholding the glory of Christ by faith. In this duty, I desire to live and to die. On Christ, I would fix all my thoughts and desires. And the more I see of the glory of Christ, the more the painted beauties of this world will wither in my eyes, and I will be more and more crucified to this world. It will become to me like something dead and putrid, impossible for me to enjoy. You see, that's what Jesus' goal for the church at Laodicea is. That the, that the things that are enamoring them in the world would become dead and putrid, impossible for them to enjoy. But how will they get there? By beholding and seeing Christ as he truly and really is. So first of all, if we're going to be lured out of the danger of self-sufficiency, we need to be enamored with Jesus Christ. But secondly, we need to depend upon Jesus. We not only be, need to be enamored with Jesus, but we need to depend upon Jesus. I want you to notice two things with me in verses 15 through 17 that Jesus says about the church at Laodicea. First of all, he says they, are dis they were distasteful. They had a very poor taste to the Lord. To crassly say it, they made him sick. Now look at verse 15 and 16. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. That's how the Laodiceans tasted the Lord. He's pure and holy. He's the amen. He's the beginning of God's creation. He's the faithful and true witness. And yet to them, he says, you're disgusting. The Greek word for to spit out of your mouth doesn't mean to spit like you're spitting a seed out of your mouth. It doesn't mean like you're getting rid of a sunflower seed in a 20-ounce bottle. It literally means to vomit. Gut-turning, food-poisoning, sick-to-your-stomach, over-the-toilet, heaving. This was a church that made Jesus nauseous. If this sounds too graphic to you and makes you cringe, it's meant to. Jesus means for them to understand that they taste disgusting to him. Now, notice that he describes them as lukewarm. Now, one interpretation of this phrase, lukewarm, uh, says that, they, that, that, that these Christians were indifferent, that that's what lukewarm means. We've, we've, we've thought about that before. That in this interpretation, hot water then would represent fervent, passionate, boiling zeal for Christ. Cold would represent unbelieving and dead spiritually. You might think, would Jesus rather us be cold than lukewarm? I mean, if that's the interpretation, right? That's what he says. So hot means burning passion for the Lord. Cold means dead to the Lord. But Jesus says in verse 16, or in verse 15... Would that you were either cold or hot. Now think about this. If this is the interpretation, that hot means passionate for Jesus, and cold means unbelieving and distant from Jesus, and lukewarm is kind of indifferent, this would underscore the danger of indifference. Wouldn't it? Lukewarmness is harder to correct than coldness. Now, that's certainly biblically true, I think. 
it's often easier to help those who are altogether lost and entirely ignorant of Christ than it is to correct spiritual apathy in folks who have no idea that they are in great need. Right? I mean, that's the ministry of Jesus. Read the Gospels. Nobody who's religious and moral and steeped in the Old Testament Scriptures gives a lick about him. The only people that are coming to him are broken, sinful, for the most part, Gentiles. And yes, some Jews too. But they're the outcasts. So brothers and sisters, this does underscore the importance of recognizing the disease of spiritual indifference. And I just want to say this to kids or adults in this room who are just kind of spiritually indifferent. You know, you know the gospel, you've heard the gospel, but it doesn't really strike you as anything huge or anything worth building your life on or around. This is dangerous to hear the gospel week after week after week. It's really dangerous. And so it doesn't mean that that the Lord somehow gives people up after they've heard the gospel. Well, you've heard it 201 times now. That's it. 200's the limit. No, but it's meant to shake us and recognize, listen, my continuing in spiritual indifference is not producing spiritual health. It's only making it harder to believe. Every time you stiff arm Christ, every time you disbelieve, it makes it harder to believe. Not less hard to believe. But... That's not the only possible interpretation of what this phrase lukewarm means. Another interpretation of lukewarm, and the one I prefer, is that Jesus is just telling them that they're useless to him. Now, why do I say that? Because water in the ancient world was useful if if it was hot or cold. It had some use and some purpose. Things are usually most tasteful, either hot or cold. Hot water is a tonic. Cold water is refreshing, both representing something good and pleasant, but lukewarm is repulsive. I'm one of those weird ones. I'll drink a lukewarm Coke, but most normal people don't do that. They're like, ugh, please make that cold or I'm not going to drink it. Or, you know, if you're going to go get your coffee and it's been sitting there for three hours, most people don't go, ah, that's good enough. No, they either reheat it in the microwave or they make it free. Because it it's rather be hot than lukewarm. We don't like lukewarm stuff. There's no purpose to it. Jesus wants the church to be refreshingly cold or intensely hot, not nauseatingly lukewarm. They were somewhere in the mushy middle, and Jesus didn't like it. They neither promoted the gospel nor opposed it. They, brought, they thought the Bible had some good ideas, but they didn't relish it. They wanted their kids to grow up moral, but not missional. They found some space in their busy weekend schedule for going to church, but they didn't redesign their whole lives around the cause of the gospel. And as a result, they were half-hearted Christians, and half-hearted Christians are no Christian at all. And oftentimes, half-hearted Christians are the most miserable people of all. As Ray Ortland Sr. one time said, half-hearted Christians know enough to feel guilty, but they haven't gone far enough with Christ to be happy. And Jesus was not going to have anything to do with that. There is a kind of Christianity that Jesus finds distasteful, and it's the kind that's useless. Sam Storm says, 
Part of what it means to be spiritually lukewarm is to be smug, complacent, satisfied with the spiritual status quo, at rest with one's progress in the Christian life, with little or no self-awareness, little or no recognition that all is of God and his Christ. To be lukewarm is to live as if what you presently know and experience of Christ is enough. No need or desire to press in further, no need or desire to seek after God, little or no longing to pray and fast, little or no longing to break free of sin, satisfied with the current depth of delight in the Spirit, satisfied with the current extent of knowledge of the Father. Just satisfied, just done, just coasting, just indifferent, just useless. So not only were they distasteful to the Lord, but they were deceived because of that. Because of their spiritual self-sufficiency, they were deceived about the true condition of their lives before Christ. Notice verse 17. For you say, this is what they said, I am rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. And they would probably say, glory to God. Glory to God. It's God's blessing. It's God's prosperity. I need nothing. That was the problem. I need nothing. Not realizing, Jesus says, that you are wretched, wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. We see what Jesus thinks about a church that thinks more about its money than him. Laodicea was a church rich in every worldly way, but they were poor in every spiritual way. They were the opposite of Smyrna, the church that was in utter poverty, but Jesus said was abundantly rich. Their wealth deceived them into thinking they didn't need anything. They were independent. They were going over their bank accounts and their budgets, and they said to themselves, with man this is impossible, but with money all things are possible. But Jesus said, without me you can do nothing, and you are nothing. Yet sadly, while the money was coming in, Jesus was going out. We see how powerful the deceitfulness of worldly prosperity and riches can be. This church measured their success by their worldly wealth and by their possessions. They validated themselves by the riches that they acquired. They grew comfortable, self-sufficient, conceited, and complacent because of their money. They traded Almighty God for the Almighty Dollar. Christ for coin. Lord for luxury. Even though Jesus said, you can't serve God and money, they said, we beg to differ. You can. And Jesus said, no, you can't. They made their choice. They were either thinking they could serve both or that they could just serve money. A man's life, Jesus says, does not consist in the abundance of his possessions, nor does the church's life, brothers and sisters. He said in the same chapter that it will not be good for anyone who stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. This is Laodicea. Laodicea was rich toward themselves, but they were poor toward God. But they not only thought they were rich, but their riches blinded them to how truly poor they were. And this is the danger of prosperity. It warps your self-image. And as a result, it warps how God views you. How many people, as we talked about last week, think that because their lives are material pro materially prosperous, that God is blessing them. May not be. May not be at all. Because if that, 
If that prosperity is leading, leading them to live more into themselves and for themselves and away from God, then brothers and sisters, that prosperity is not a blessing, it's a curse. Laodicea was bankrolled in the world, but bankrupt in Jesus Christ. They had become a rich church in their own eyes when actually they were very, very poor in the eyes of the Lord. They didn't realize that you can be filthy rich in this world and a filthy beggar before God. To be lukewarm then, as the Laodiceans were, is to be living like you need nothing from God. And may that never be the case with us. And may God give us enough trials to keep it so. That we continually look to him. This is why we should thank him. As Charles Spurgeon said, we learn to kiss the waves that throw us against the rock of ages. Because it's a gift that God would bless us and allow us to grow up and live in a relatively materially prosperous, the richest nation the world has ever known. What is he going to have to do to keep us aware of our need? He's going to have to send some trials into our lives. There's going to have to be some baby funerals. There's going to have to be some serious, serious surgeries. There's going to have to be cancer. There's going to have to be these things, and these are gifts from the Lord to keep us from depending on ourselves. Brothers and sisters, the fact that we worship God on a debt-free property, have cash on hand, and a growing budget should give us very little comfort. It should make us thankful, and we are, but we should not allow these things to lure us into a place of complacency and self-sufficiency. A quick way to make God deal sternly with us is to turn away from trusting him and start putting our trust in ourselves. The temptations of prosperity continue to plague the church today. It continues to deceive us into self-sufficiency. We grow comfortable in our affluence and we think that we can rely on ourselves to fix our own problems. If we get hungry, we buy some food. If we get injured, we've got medical insurance. If we want a vacation, we got savings. If we get old, we got a retirement plan. It's not necessarily wrong to have any of those things, but a godly attitude daily recognizes that everything we have comes from the generous hands of our God and not from our hard-earned paycheck. Feeling good about ourselves or the state of our church does not necessarily mean we are spiritually vibrant. Lukewarmness can be the most difficult condition to discern in ourselves. The process of cooling down is usually gradual and goes unnoticed. No one who is lukewarm thinks they are. That's the danger. Nobody thinks they're lukewarm. We see here our daily need for grace. Now, how can we be deceived into self-sufficiency today? I think one of the most convicting and powerful things that, that always reminds me of my ongoing struggles with self-sufficiency is my lack of prayer. How much you pray this week? How much did you get on your knees and call out to God for help? Behold your self-sufficiency. And mine too. And mine too. Our prayer lives are the measure of our self-sufficiency. Because deep down, that's what we're believing. 
we either think God's not hearing, God won't answer, there's no use to pray anyway, it's not going to change anything. That's why we don't pray. It's not because we don't have time. Needy people make time for needs. If you're hungry, you eat. It's not, a, and it's not an issue of time. It's not, it's, it's not an issue of priorities. It's an issue of self-sufficiency. Our prayer meetings are the measure of our congregational self-sufficiency, which is scary sometimes. Another indicator of our self-sufficiency is our willingness to live the Christian life in isolation from other believers. And this is what COVID is largely exposing in part. I'm not talking about the legitimate, real necessities of social distancing and taking care of those sorts of things and quarantining when necessary. But some of it is creating a habit where Christians get in the, in comfortable living in isolation from other believers. And if you're comfortable living in isolation from the church, that's dangerous because it's saying you don't need them. I mean, how many of us have ever moved somewhere for a better job without ever even considering if there's a good gospel church nearby? Now, I know there are people who are listening to me this morning, brothers and sisters who are right in front of me, that have not made that decision, that the gospel, that the gospel finding a good gospel preaching church was primary in why they were going where they were going. Not secondary. They would take a lower-paying job for a better preaching church or a better loving and God-honoring church than they would a higher-paying job with a less healthy church. But what about missing church or gathering with God's people only when it's convenient or when we have nothing better to do? That reveals a dangerous self-deception and self-sufficiency as well. The deception is that we don't really need the local church to live the Christian life, and that is completely foreign to everything Jesus in the New Testament says. The local church is what will keep you in love with Christ, which is exactly the, exactly the, the premise that the Bible lays out, that the, that the nature of the Christian life is one in which brothers and sisters are exhorting one another every day to not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so we gather so that we can encourage one another and preach that to each other. One final indicator is when we're tempted as a church to rely on our own efforts to reach the community or grow the church. Our greatest danger as a church is not government legislation. It's not religious persecution. It's not even false teaching and bad doctrine, all of which are real dangers. The main one is the prosperity of the church that lures it into self-sufficiency. Brothers and sisters, it's so easy to grow lukewarm. This will be the battle of our lives. Staying in tune with Christ as our chief treasure will require vigilant and constant effort. Now let me press this on us a little more. Here are some questions to help us evaluate this. Number one, which do you view as more pressing and more urgent? Reading or watching the news or reading and studying the Bible? Be honest with yourself. Which do you feel as more urgent or more pressing? More a threat to you? Got to keep up on what's going on in the world or got to keep, keep up what's going on in the word? Which is more urgent to you? Which gets more time 
from you. That is a key to, to ask yourself. Obviously, both are valuable, but on a day-to-day basis, if you only have time to do one or the other, which gets done? I ain't going to miss the news. I might miss the Bible, but I ain't going to miss what's current. I'll forsake what's ancient and true for what's current because I need that. If you only had time to do one thing or the other and your choices were between taking the time to pray and checking your email or Facebook or Twitter or whatever, which would you view as the more pressing activity? If you could choose between two things, a lottery ticket that was guaranteed to win a billion dollars or an empty bank account with the assurance that God would provide for you and meet your needs if you trust him, which would you choose? Would you choose to have more money than you could ever spend or would you choose the opportunity to trust God? Which would you choose to have your hopes and dream realized in the American political scene by seeing all your candidates elected and all your political issues dealt with the way you want them handled or the opportunity to identify yourself as an alien and stranger for whom this world is not our home? These questions are trying to get at four significant key questions in our hearts. What shapes your thinking, the world or the Bible? What communication do you view as non-negotiable, horizontal with other people or vertical with God? What do you trust, money or Jesus? With what do you ultimately identify, a political party or the kingdom of God? Now you say, Mark, you just went to meddling there, right? You were always all preaching good, the self-sufficiency stuff, but then you started getting our Facebook lives and started... No, I love you. That's why I'm saying that. I love you. I'm your pastor. I care about your soul. I want you in heaven for all eternity. We love you. We love you. And that's why we push those sorts of things. Not because we're trying to rob you and make you miserable. And No, we love you and we want you with the Lord. Number three, we need to recommit to Jesus. Laodicea needed to change the way they measured success. First, we need to rearrange the price tags in our lives, right? What's most valuable? We need to have those price tags reevaluated. Look at verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. See, Laodicea was a wealthy city. They had a strong banking and finance industry. They were very successful in clothing, being the manufacturer of a a glossy black wool cloth and for their medicine products, which featured eye salve, which helped protect and heal their eyes. So here's the point. Trade all that in for Jesus. (laughs) That's what he's saying to them. Wealth is found not in possessions, but in a person. Trust this person for your provision not your possessions. If you have Jesus Christ and nothing else, you have everything. But if you have everything without Jesus Christ, you've got nothing. That's what he's telling them. Jesus offers them three things, gold, clothes, and eye salve. These are great. These would be great, valuable items in the city of Laodicea. First, he says gold. Christ says, I'm the wealthiest thing you can get. Buy gold from me. I am the great treasure. Isaiah 55, 1 through 3. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? 
Second, he says clothes. The only way to cover our sin and our shame is with the garments that Christ provides. His righteousness, which covers us. Zechariah 3, verses 1 to 4. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. That's what we have in Christ. Then thirdly, I salve. Christ gives us spiritual illumination. He enables us to see what's really there. The Lord opens our eyes, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 4-6. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So as we assess our hearts, we must ask, on what or on whom are we relying? Are we relying on Jesus or relying on ourselves? Are we placing our hope in Christ or are we hoping in what Jesus gives? What consumes our daily thoughts? What dominates our budget? And what do we find solace? Christ, a tub of ice cream, a bottle of vodka, Amazon, Second, we need to reawaken to Jesus' love for us. Look at verse 19. There, those whom I love, I approve and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Jesus says, don't take this, the fact that I'm heaving over a toilet, to think that I don't love you. <laughs> I mean, they would, they would conclude that. Jesus must absolutely hate us. Look, we're blind to our spiritual condition. We're worthless to him. No, he says, I'm dealing with you severely, church at Laodicea, for this reason. I want you to awaken to my love. I want you to be zealous and repent. If I didn't love you, I wouldn't say this. I'd just leave you. I'd just walk away and say, you know what? They're done with me. I'm done with them. But he says, those whom I love, I come back to and I implore to be zealous and repent. But his love for the Laodiceans wasn't expressed as a reassurance. His love came as a rebuke. His love meets our need, sometimes comforting, sometimes cutting, sometimes tender, sometimes tough. So brothers and sisters, we too must not resent the Lord's discipline. It's for our good. It stands out to me here that Jesus' solution to the Laodiceans' love for money was for them to understand his love for them. Love for money is always a symptom, not the cause. Love for money is a desire driven by fear and by pride. Fear of not having enough and pride in what we think having things makes us important or special. But when you know that Jesus loves you and you you have no fear because he will care for you. And when you know that Jesus loves you, your pride dissolves because he's not impressed with what you have. In fact, he knows how little we have to offer, yet he still loves us tremendously. Thirdly and finally, and with this I conclude, we need to welcome Jesus back in. We need to welcome Jesus back in. Verse 20, I'm not going to make the old preacher insult. This isn't an evangelistic verse. This is a church verse. It's, it can be used for both. But notice the context. It is a verse for the church. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. 
If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. When he comes to Laodicea and sees what it looks like, he says, bring me back in. I want to be a part of your church again. I want to have fellowship with you again. He's not forcing himself on them. He's humbly knocking at their door. He's standing outside his own church, cold and in the rain, knocking lightly, saying, I'd like to come in. I'd like to come back in. Isn't this kind of a sad picture? Some people believe, like I've already said, that this is a, a verse inviting the lost to let Christ come into their hearts. But this is a church verse referring to believers letting Christ come back into their lives. He loves these people. He wants in. He says, open up to me and let me come back in. And notice, he's totally willing to do it. He's willing to come back in. You could even say he's eager to come in. Listen, look, listen to this verse 20 again. Behold, it says, look, look, listen, listen. I stand. He's not sitting. He's standing. Sta I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, he's, anybody want me? Anybody want me? The amen, the beginning of God's creation, the alpha and the omega, the true and faithful witness, the one who's bringing God's new creation. Anybody want me? Anybody still interested in me? Anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. We're going to be best friends all over again. This is our gracious and good and kind King Jesus. The love of the world began to grow in the hearts of this church. Christ knew they couldn't love the world and him. And we can't allow our hearts to grow in love with the world either. But notice, the way in which our hearts are warmed to Christ is not, I'm just going to try harder, I'm not going to do that, I'm going to resist the lure of the world, no. Brothers and sisters, we resist the lure of the world by having something greater to be in love with than the world. If Christ and his beauty and his magnificence and his fellowship is not good enough, Nothing's good enough. Nothing's good enough. But here's what he's offering us. I'll come back to you. I'll sit with you. I'll eat with you. I'll be with you all over again. The Laodiceans, I imagine, put the Lord out of their fellowship slowly over time as they gradually focus more and more on material and worldly success. But here he is saying to them, Live to be a sweet taste to me. And remember that all your truest riches are found in me. Well, may the Lord grant us that grace. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for these seven letters. We feel like we've just scratched the surface these last several weeks as we've mined into your counsel for the church of 
all ages and all times and all places. Lord, we acknowledge our vulnerability. We acknowledge our self-sufficiency. We acknowledge our God neglect. And we thank you, Jesus, that those whom you love, you come to. Lord, we want to have you maximally in our midst. We want to have you with us. We want to have you seated at our proverbial table always. We want to never, ever put you out. God forbid that we would. Keep knocking, keep pursuing, keep granting us grace. Thank you for everything that you have done. May we not be so prone to, to, to make, make our trials into monuments and write our blessings in the sand. May we remember, Lord, how good you are and how kind you've been and how you have delivered us from everything that is, that is ultimately important. And Lord, please preserve us, keep us, hold on to us this week as we, as we struggle in the midst of COVID-19 and being able to be together as much as we would like to. Lord, sustain us, help us, keep us, preserve us. Thank you for daily renewing grace. Thank you for the promises that we've sung and read and prayed and preached this morning. And we just recommit ourselves to you. We recommit our lives to you today. We pray for your grace. We ask for your provision. We ask for your mercy. We lay ourselves at your feet, Lord Jesus, and say, hold us up. Keep us from being deceived. Keep us from being lured into self-sufficiency and preserve us and, 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 and bless all these truths that we've, we've read and preached and, and thought about in these letters to the seven churches. Bless them to our church and to all your churches so that in this day we might shine as lampstands that you would desire and that would bring you great glory. We ask all this in the name of our King Jesus. Amen.